Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm speaking with economist David D. Friedman about his book, Legal Systems Very Different from Ours. David and I talk about the legal systems of various societies throughout history and around the globe, including Imperial China, the Comanche, Medieval Iceland, the Finnish Romani, and traditional Somalia, among others. We also talk about some of David's earlier books, including The Machinery of Freedom, and some current projects he's working on. This is my interview with David Friedman. I'm an academic economist who has a doctorate in theoretical physics, uh, an interest in recreational uh, medievalism, uh, and spent about close to 30 years teaching at law schools, uh, teaching and researching at law schools. Uh, And I guess my, I suppose I'm in a sense an economic imperialist, that is, I part of the project of using economics to answer questions that non-economists don't think of as economics uh, and applying economics to understanding legal systems is one of the things that does that. Uh, but I also have historical interests and the book that you wanted me to talk about today is a book that came out of the seminar that I taught every other year for quite a long time at Santa Clara University School of Law on legal systems very different from ours. Uh, And it was fun. Uh, I learned from my students and hopefully they learned from me and eventually I made it into a book. And uh, just to be clear, the the hours in the title is Modern American Law, is that right? Correct, correct. Uh, Although from from the standpoint of that book, Modern American Law, Modern English Law are essentially identical and modern American law, modern European law, and modern Japanese law are similar enough so that I don't really count them as as very different. So the the closest I came to our system was 18th century English law. And that was because I had already written an article on it, and it turned out to have some very interesting features. But most of the societies, the systems I was looking at were much more different. They were things like uh, saga period Iceland, which I had written about a long time ago, uh, modern Amish, uh, imperial China, which is a fascinating system, uh, Periclean Athens. Uh, I'm not going to give the whole list. And I should say, to be fair, there were two chapters written by other people. There were two people I knew who had written books on interesting legal systems. Pirates yeah. and prisons, right? Pirates and prisons, right. Peter Leeson and David Scarbeck. So I got them to do what were essentially chapter-sized versions of their books. I, you know, I could have done it myself because I'd read the books, but I figured it'd be better to have them do it. Uh, so, so really, I'm the author of almost all of the book, minus two chapters. And is it true that uh, the origin of your teaching the course was just a more or less a commitment mechanism to get you off your butt to do some new research? That's the story I like to tell, that, that the sequence of events was that at quite a long time ago, I got interested in the legal system of saga period Iceland uh, about a thousand years ago. And that, that ultimately came, let me go back a little bit further. There was an exchange between two prominent economists at Chicago and two prominent legal scholars at Chicago, in which the economists were arguing that our system of criminal law is not incentive compatible. That is to say that it is not in the interest of the people in question to do the things they're supposed to do for the system to work. And my version of their story, not their version, is uh, I'm a cop, you're a bad guy, and I've got the goods on you. I've got the evidence that will send you to prison. 
And from your standpoint, going to prison is the equivalent of a $100,000 fine. And from my standpoint, sending you to prison will get me a gold star in my report card and raise my lifetime income by $10,000. Well, according to Dragnet, we know what happens. I turn the evidence over to the prosecutor. You go to jail. According to economics, we know what happens. Markets exist to move resources for their highest value use. And the evidence that you are guilty is worth $100,000 to you and $10,000 to me. So I sell it to you for some price in between those, those sums. And that means that in order for the system to work, you need, in effect, to have a second layer of cops watching the first layer, maybe a third layer watching the second layer. So Becker and Stigler said, well, how about we solve this problem by instead uh, making it that, in, that we, don't pay, we don't pay cops a salary. When you pay a $100,000 fine, the cop who caught you gets it. Now it's not in my interest to accept a bribe unless it's a full $100,000, in which case we just saved the trouble of a trial. So it was sort of an interesting idea, and they explored a little bit. And then Landis and Posner, who are two prominent law and econ people at Chicago, wrote a response in which they first pointed out that once you filled out the details, what Becker and Stigler had really done was to reinvent tort law. Because after all, in tort law, you wrong me, I prove it, your fine is the damage payment, which I collect. And they then raised some problems with, with, with doing that. Some re basically, they had what they thought was a proof that once you filled out the details, although it might work, it couldn't work perfectly. That, that the logic of it was such that you were trying to solve an impossible problem when you set it up in order to get it optimal in, in all ways. So I got interested and I ended up writing two different articles. One of them was a theoretical article showing how you could solve the problem they had raised, showing that in fact, by a slight tweak in how you set up the institutions, you could indeed make it in principle perfect in, in, all the, in, in both the ways they said you couldn't. Uh, but the second article was about Saga period Iceland because it occurred to me that I'd heard about a real world system that wasn't that far from what they described. How did the you first get turned on to Saga Period Iceland? I read the sagas. I read okay. some sagas. Uh, the sagas, for people who, who, assuming there might be somebody in the audience who isn't familiar with Saga Period Iceland, <laughs> uh, Iceland um, was settled in about 870 AD. Uh, in 930 AD, they worked out a legal system. Uh, and that legal system survived for about a third of a millennium. It finally, they finally give up and turn over the country to the King of Norway in the 1260s. Uh, there were problems before that. It, it was, there was about a 50 year period of breakdown before that, but that's still better than we've done, uh, especially since our period of breakdown, namely the civil war, happened a lot faster and was a lot bloodier than theirs. Uh, but in any case, the, the sagas are a literature uh, let me put it this way. One of the things that ought to impress you about Saga period Iceland is that this is a population of about 70,000 people in a far corner of the world, most of a thousand years ago. And there are probably at least a dozen books they wrote that are still in print in English translation. All right? yeah, that That's the size, of a, size of, a small, of a small suburb. Those are the sagas. Uh, and they are, in effect, novels. They're stories. Uh, 
Some of them are, they're probably some mix of history and fiction, and we don't know for sure the details. But it turns out that a lot of what they're about is the legal system. That uh, there's a quote I came across by like a 19th century scholar who said that it was extraordinary. It's such an elaborate and sophisticated legal system existed among people whose chief hobby was killing each other. And he was wrong. <laughs> Their chief hobby was suing each other. And they just had to have a killing once in a while to keep the lawsuits going. Yeah, uh, and- I haven't read it, but it comes it comes like a lot of the drama in the sagas is them suing each other. It's like a courtroom mm. drama, medieval courtroom yeah, in dramas. In fact, it is. That's right. <laughs> uh, there are, in fact, substantial scenes that are happening in effect in an outdoor courtroom. Uh, and the protagonist, the, the person who Nial saga is named after, it's one of the most famous of the sagas, is not a great warrior. He's the best lawyer in Iceland, or at least one of probably one of the best, maybe the best lawyer in Iceland. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it was an interesting system, but it was a system where if somebody killed your your relative, you sued him. That is to say, there. It, it, I, I like to refer to it as a semi-stateless society, because there was a law code, there was a court system, there was a legislature to change the law code. But there was no executive arm of government. There was no governmental mechanism to enforce the law. So uh, I sue you. We go through a legal process. Uh, The legal process says you owe me 100 ounces of silver. And you either pay me or you don't pay me. And if you don't pay me, I have you outlawed. It is now legal for anybody who wants to to kill you. And it is illegal for anybody to protect you. So it was a a system in which it was a more... It was, in a sense, less of a state system than what uh, Becker and Sigler had suggested, because their system, the, the government was still enforcing the verdicts. But it was a system where the job of the police, as it were, was being taken over by private parties uh, with no with no equivalent of a police force to, to enforce it. So that intrigued me. And so I read everything I could find. Uh, now, it turns out that there is a survival. There's a surviving body of legal rules, which at the time I wrote the article had not yet been translated into English. And so I worked from the sagas themselves and from secondary sources. When I got to writing this current book, some nice people had translated the the, uh, collection, two volumes. uh, And so I read it. And that was quite Icelandic is pretty rusty, I'm guessing. I do not know old Icelandic, alas. But part of what was interesting, part of what I discussed in the chapter in the book, is that the uh, Gragas, which is the collection of legal rules, is in some ways inconsistent with the sagas. And we don't know. Oh, I'd have to go read the book. I go go through a number number of details uh, where they're not, things are not happening in the sagas the way it is implied that they that they ought to have uh, happen. I guess the clearest thing is that in Gragas, if I attack you and you kill me, I die with forfeit immunity because I've attacked you, sort of like a self-defense case. Uh, <coughs> you do not owe damages for killing me. In the sagas, you have cases where a bunch of people attack some people and the guy who were attacked kills some of the attackers. 
And there, there's a famous scene in the All Saga where uh, Gunnar, who is a great hero, and his brother, who's pretty good, are attacked by a group of enemies. And they kill some of them and the rest run away. And his brother says, uh, why don't let's chase them and kill some more of them? And Gunnar says, no, our purses will be empty by the time we pay for the ones we've killed already. <laughs> they couldn't so, afford the, uh, what is it, Wear Guild? Yes. Blood price? Yes. Uh, and... And that's clearly suggesting that even though they're not at fault, uh, they they what will actually happen will be a negotiation. But there is at least a risk they they probably will have to pay some damages. So that that's the clearest example. But there are a variety of other things uh, that that uh, are not consistent. So I, that was sort of fun to discuss. But anyway, that was how I first got interested in this general project, uh, and I thought it was fun to try to make sense of the legal system. People then were not stupid. Uh, maybe no stupider than we are, yet it seems very strange trying to understand it. And then a good many years later, I got interested in the legal system of 18th century England, criminal law in 18th century England. And I originally got into that for the wrong reason, as it turned out, uh, but it was a very interesting system. I originally got into that because Gary Becker, who I mentioned in the Becker and Stigler thing, also had a piece where he was raising a sort of a puzzle the idea that suppose we're catching uh, 20% of the criminals and putting them in jail for and fining them $10,000. How about we catch 10% and fine them $20,000? That ought to have the same deterrent effect, the average one. How about uh, 5% and, and, and $40,000? And the implication seems to be that the efficient legal system will use infinite punishments with infinitesimal probability. One of the things that the 18th century English system is famous for is what's called the bloody code. And that was a system of criminal law in which very nearly all serious crimes were capital. So it sounded like that was something along the lines of what Becker had suggested. You can't go to infinity, but you can hang people. So I got interested. It turned out it wasn't really true. Uh, That was one of the interesting things. It was true on paper. But in fact, if you were charged with those offenses, one of those offenses, Judging by the list of the sets of cases people have looked at, you had, I think, about a one chance in eight of being hanged. And if you were convicted, you had maybe a 40% chance of being hanged. So the system was really set up so you could get convicted of a capital offense, and then there were various interesting ways out. Uh, in, but, but it turned out that the interesting thing about it was that it was also, in a somewhat different way from the Icelandic, a system of privately prosecuted law, that there were no police and no public prosecutors, essentially. Uh, the only the only crimes where the government gets involved is if you steal from the post office, if you if you commit a crime against the against the crown. But as far as ordinary crimes, it was up to the victim to uh, find out who did it, bring the evidence to court, prove he did it. And unlike a tort system or unlike the Icelandic system, he didn't collect anything. All right. So that the so it was privately prosecuted by the victim or somebody acting for the victim. Uh, but it was not clear what the incentives were to prosecute. And yet it was a functional system. It lasted quite a long time. Not as long as the Icelandic, but quite a long time. So I got interested in that. So that chapter was really a bunch of different puzzles because that system turned out to raise... I don't know, three or four or five different interesting puzzles, which I explored. And then I was lazy for a long time. I didn't do anything (laughs) interesting along those lines. And it occurred to me that this had been a lot of fun. 
I learned quite a lot from both of those articles, and they were good articles. And I needed some way of getting myself to do to, to stop being lazy and get some work done along those lines. So I announced that I was teaching the next year a seminar on legal systems very different from ours. Well, once I'd announced that I had to get enough enough material for, for, for a semester's <laughs> seminar. I then went into our library, which had nice, helpful people at the law school, and I explained what I was doing. And they ended up providing me with a rolling bookcase, uh, I think two or three shelves, and maybe I don't remember exactly how big, but full of books they thought might be relevant. And I went through it. And I ended up with a reasonable number of interesting legal systems. And uh, over the years that I taught it every other year, I also got interesting stuff from the students uh, because it was a seminar, you had to write a paper, and almost all of the papers consisted of finding some legal system I hadn't covered and researching it the same way I had been doing in each of my chapters. So in effect, each paper was like doing one of my one of my chapters. And with the uh, diversity of the student population, were some of them talking or elaborating on legal systems they had firsthand experience with? I just noticed I have this lying around. This was one of the papers. Uh, I don't know if you can read it, but it's Harmony and Order in the Ancient Egyptian Legal System. Don't remember if it was a good one or not. For some reason, it happens to be, to be sitting here. <laughs> but yeah, no, I had a variety of, of, of people with different backgrounds. Uh, I guess my two favorite stories on that. Uh, one of them was one year, there was a tall, sort of, I would say, very Anglo-looking fellow. And at the beginning of the semester, when I was discussing the class, I said, you know, do you know, do any of you have some special knowledge or some special background that will help you pick a society to, to, to study its legal system? And he said, well, I speak Vietnamese. Well, that seems sort of odd. And I said, you speak Vietnamese? How come you speak Vietnamese? But, oh, I was a missionary. He was or had been a Mormon. And I said, in Vietnam? And he said, no, Los Angeles. <laughs> the Mormons are smart, right? You've got an immigrant population. They're, it's much easier to get to them than going to, than going to Vietnam, but they're still potential converts. So he wrote me a pretty good paper on the legal system of ancient Vietnam. I thought you were going to say of uh, the Mormon church. No, somebody else did that. Did anybody ever write a paper on um, the internal legal system of Scientology? No. That might be interesting, but I don't, as far as I know, I didn't have any Scientologists or ex-Scientologists in the class. It just occurred to me reading, you know, about um, Amish law and uh, mm -hmm. Romani law, that Scientologists also practice a form of shunning. Yes. That remind, that came yeah. out very, I've, re I've re read a decent amount about it, and it sounds, and I've heard, you know, former Mormons or former Jehovah's Witnesses talk about their practice of shunning and uh, yes, it sounds very. No, no I think there that. are a number of a number of similarities actually, but uh, because I think Scientologists also practice uh, essentially abusing the legal system in order to punish people uh, that is uh, suing in various ways and so forth. They do that's, that's primarily of, outsiders, but that's one of the things the Romani do. Yeah, so it, but the, the Romani outsider. do it do it to the each insider. other, right? Or at least the, the one from California, the group from California you wrote about. That was that. That was the story. Yeah, you know, they actually, I think the particular one was somebody in Texas, but the author was somebody who spent time with California Romani. Uh, but in any case, so so that that's how the book the book came came to be written, and it turned out to be a lot of fun. It was had all sorts of interesting stuff in it. But the the last year I taught it, just before I retired, my class consisted almost entirely of Saudi LLM students and Saudi Arabia 
is pretty much the closest thing to traditional Islamic law of any of any modern society, a modern state. Islamic societies talk about having Sharia law, but it isn't really true. Uh, and the Saudis are really about the closest. I think Sharia is the wrong term for reasons I discuss in the in the chapter. Yeah, you go over it's that's more of kind of like like an ideal conception of law in the mind of God and that the, that at least is what I think is the best interpretation of it. I might be wrong, but yes. Now uh, obviously so, they they practice a, not Sunni, but Shia is is modern Iran close to an orthodox Muslim I, that's system? A good question, and I don't know. I actually gave a talk in Iran online maybe two weeks ago, and uh, some of that came up, but I don't know enough. I, but I, I'm only really talking about Sunni because that's what I've, what I've studied. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a very interesting system, but that meant that I had primary sources in my classroom. In fact, there was one assertion about the legal system that I had gotten from what should have been a reliable secondary source. They told me it wasn't true. There was a particular institution, which, according to my source, had died out a long time ago. And my students said, no, no, it hasn't died out. The last names we're listed under are indeed labeling us by our tribe equivalent. And these were essentially the modern survivals of the pattern of Arabic tribes. Uh, and they affected the legal system so that if you uh, ended up having to pay a large amount of damages, some of that payment would be shared by the other members of your group. So it was not a, it was a non-trivial matter. Furthermore, as far as I could tell, the marriage was almost entirely endogamous within the tribes. Lots of other interesting things. There was there was I think only one woman among them, and her mother was a law professor. And I had some long conversations with a nice lady, very interesting conversations. A law professor in Saudi Arabia. Yep. Correct. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, with I think one exception, all colleges are either men's colleges or women's colleges, and a woman's college has no men in it, including any professors sort, and including administrators. Professors. If they have, if they have to have a a lecture given by a male, it's done by closed circuit television. <laughs> in Saudi Arabia, a restaurant will have an area for men, an area for women, and an area for married couples. By her account, if her brother wanted to get married, it would be the job of her and her mother to find him a bride. Because there were no contexts in that society in which single men and women uh, were, into, were, were expected. Yeah, you can't social. mingle. Yeah, that's right. In a uh, modern context, does um, electronics get in the way of that? I don't know. The question didn't come up. On the other hand, it wouldn't be as hard as it would be for us because the total number of candidates would be pretty small. There'd have to be somebody of the right age, presumably about the right status, income level, and so forth, from within her tribe. So there might be only eight or 10 women who, who he could marry, so to speak, or could plausibly consider marrying. And of that and they, group, the women in his family would make the decision. I, I don't know. My, my guess is he would get a final, at least when I've talked a long Some time input. ago to a woman from India, from Southern India, who was part of an arranged marriage. And at least in that system, the couple had a veto at the point when they were introduced to each other in some form. I don't know how they do it in, the, in Saudi Arabia, but the main search, as it were, was being done by the family. That was the case here. So it was a lot of fun. And that, that was the last year. And I thought it was a neat way of ending it. It gave me some additional information. So anyway, that's, that's what that book is, is about. And, it's a and very fun book. You, I you, mentioned, so. you mentioned something about 
18th century England, the penalties, the bloody code, everything, anything, you know, above petty theft or whatever was the death penalty, essentially. On the paper, only, but not the in only exception for some odd reason is manslaughter. <laughs> it was a crime, but for some odd reason was not treated as a capital crime. So that seemed to me reading through reading through the different chapters in the various legal systems to be a surprisingly common pattern in Islamic law and Jewish law. You know, the the traditional punishment for a disobedient son being to be stoned to death. And you point out that that doesn't just sound barbaric to modern ears. Apparently, it sounded barbaric to ancient or at least medieval you, Jewish ears as well. You, you have Jewish scholars who assert that it has never happened. So. My question is, why is that such a common pattern all the way from 18th century England to, uh, yeah. you know, second millennium is, BC? The, the, the obvious reason why capital punishment is much more accepted in past societies is that they're much poorer than we are. A imprisonment is expensive. But why not right. flogging or ostracism or something? Well, the, but, but most of them do use flogging. Certainly the, the Chinese does, the Islamic does, uh, in fact, the Chinese, the imperial China really doesn't make much use of capital punishment. There's some, but it's not a, it, it's fairly low there. Uh, but, but there are going to be some cases where, uh, you know, it, it's a serious, it's a serious, it's, it's more serious than a flogging that won't kill him will, will punish. Uh, the, I mean, one of the things I discuss in the English case is uh, the absence uh, of galley slavery. That galleys, my view at least, and I'm not sure I'm right, people think of galley slavery as sort of from classical antiquity, from the Romans. It isn't true. Galley slavery, as far as we know, is a Renaissance invention. And I think I know why. I think what's going on is that through antiquity and most of the Middle Ages, naval warfare was basically a land battle on a ship. That you grappled the other ship, you boarded it. You can see that very clearly in the Icelandic sagas, which are describing uh, Viking conflicts. Well, what you don't want if you're going to be fighting hand to hand is a crew that is chained, disarmed, and hates you. You want your crew to be people who will then get up with their axes and swords and go fight the other guys. So I think it's only when uh, ships start to become gun platforms that then you don't care if you're a machine, if, if you're you engine. You can afford is. to have a bunch of hostile fifth columns on your ship. Right. So uh, what seems to happen is that when galley slavery is invented, Mediterranean powers stop executing able-bodied men because they finally got a form of imprisonment that pays more than it costs. <laughs> England, galleys apparently don't work very well in the Atlantic because the waves are too big. So the English didn't, didn't have that option. And what their equivalent was transportation, so that you are convicted of a capital crime. And if the judge does not think it, you really ought to, die, ought to hang, he offers you one, one. There are several alternatives he might offer you, but one of them is to agree to be pardoned on condition of transportation. And that means that you have agreed to 17 years of indentured servitude in the new world. Australia was later, but, but most of the period I'm looking at was before the American Revolution when they could dump them on the colonies. <laughs> uh, and so that was a way of, and even there it was, it was tricky that, that, that what they ended up doing was that a, a captain had a ship full of, of transportees. And when he gets to the new world, he auctions them off. I believe it was the case, if I remember correctly, that when the system started, the captains were unwilling to take anyone except 
sort of basically healthy young men because the what they could get for auctioning them wasn't enough to cover the costs. And I believe if I remember correctly, I did this stuff a long time ago, so I may have details wrong, but I think it ended up that the government subsidized transportation, but not by very much. Uh, and that was enough so that to, to get the ship captaincy willing to take more or less everybody they were given, uh, transport them to the new world and auction them off and come back for another load. Uh, now there are other there are other forms of pardoning. The the other two uh, two versions of the pardon, uh, other than the than transportation, uh, were being were enlistment. If there was a war going on, the judge could agree to pardon you on condition if you're agreeing to enlist in the army or navy because they always needed soldiers and sailors. But the judge could also just pardon you and send you home, tell you not to do it again. And so I spend some time in the chapter trying to make sense of those institutions, trying to figure out why you would have a system where you sentence people to die and then say, oh, by the way, you're not actually dying. Such as if you happening. if you start that high with a with a possible death sentence, there's a lot of places below that you can go. But it, maybe it wouldn't be as tenable to start with a lower sentence and then say, just kidding, you're going to be executed. You no, know, that wouldn't work very well. But but. But anyway, so again, this is stuff I discussed some, in some detail in the, in the chapter. That was one of the fun chapters, one of the longer chapters, as was the Icelandic. But then I've got lots of others. Uh, and I guess probably the most, insofar as anything novel that comes out of it, because it happens to be related to my other interests, it was looking at what I referred to as feud law, of which Iceland is an example. But that there are have been a, a noticeable number of societies where law enforcement was private and decentralized. And I discuss probably three societies of which that's true. And well, four, if you count the, if if you count the the Romani uh, of which that's true. And I then have a chapter, which is trying to work out the logic of that is to say, if you have a system of this sort and the basic logic of a feud system is if you wrong me, I threaten to harm you unless you compensate me. And then the question is, under what circumstances does that work? Under what circumstances does that actually give a working legal system? And, and you point out that run through. a feud system is uh, is totally unrelated to the idea of a, of a feudal system. Correct. The words have no connection, even in etymology. They come from entirely different different root words. They well, they're very inconsiderate same. words. It's quite confusing. Yes. Yes. But the feud feud system has to solve a set of problems. And I discuss in the chapter what those problems are and how the various systems I looked at uh, solve them. Uh, but it can function. I mean, the Icelandic system functioned for a long time. The traditional Somali system back before they tried to create a country of Somalia seems to have worked tolerably well for a long time. Uh, the Romani have been around, well, we don't know how long, but at least in Europe for at least 600 years or so. Well, they actually have, there are two different kinds of Romani legal systems. I discussed that, but one of them is essentially a feud system. So anyway, so that, that, that was fun. Uh, but the whole project was fun, that we're, we're used to taking for granted the way we do things. That's a mistake because the, there are lots of different ways of doing things and people in the past were not generally stupid, no more often than we are. If you sort of start out with the assumption, not that they did it this way because they were too ignorant to do it our way, but that this was a solution to the problems legal systems deal with, how, how did it work, what issues did it raise, and so so speaking of very different legal systems, one, one thing that's jumped out at me is the chapter on the Romani, marriage is often considered a human universal. 
And you and your chapter at least claims that one branch of the Romani does not practice the institution of marriage, or at least if they do, it's maybe sufficiently unrecognizable. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. That that's a somewhat special case, though, because it's it's only the the the, the Kale, the Finnish Romani. It's not yeah. two of the other Romani groups, but the the Kale have no institution of marriage, and they, as it were, for public purposes, do not acknowledge the facts of, re- of human reproduction. What happens if a couple want to, in effect, become a couple and produce children is that they run away. They run away from the household of whoever's probably the woman's household. They run far enough so that their her pursuing relatives can't catch them. They then uh, produce a child. And when the child is weaned, they return to the household, act as if they're guilty people who've acted, who behaved very badly in, in wanting to do this. Her sisters smuggle her and the baby into the household. He is very apologetic and joins the household. And the ch- the child, in effect, is not, well, he, he probably, the child probably knows who his mother is, but certainly for official purposes, all of her, probably her sisters, all of the women of that age are equally treating treated as mother of the child. What about the and father? I guess it, they could end up in the father's household, I guess. I'm not sure if they could, but... But the father will will commonly live with live with them. I don't. I'm not sure what, to what extent they talk about as being the father. They probably don't. Just given the general prejudice, they don't celebrate birthdays until they're about forty. Because forty, you've sort of gotten far enough from the shameful fact of having been born. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's it's interesting. There was a a, a Finnish anthropologist who investigated all this stuff and describes it in some detail. But once they return, the mother and father, you know, there's obviously there's no ceremony, there's no coupling ceremony, and they and don't. They might or might not stay together. Okay, so but it would be it would be the norm at least, or not unusual for them to go off do this. They have their little. I mean, they stay away for a year while they're trying to get pregnant. I don't know how long. If more than a year, because she, the the the, 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 the baby has to be the baby has to be weaned. In I'm assuming order they rush that process. By its mother. And I think generally uh, they use long dresses and it's not obvious the woman is pregnant, at <laughs> least until she's very pregnant. Anyway, you know, that, was, that was one of the interesting ones. But there are, there are lots of interesting things out there. That was, again, part of the fun of doing that kind of book is, is all of the interesting things that are out there. One of the interesting things you mention in the chapter on the Plains Indians is how to think about uh, source material for these legal systems. I mean, so, for instance, imperial China and ancient Jewish law is documented just ad nauseum. But imperial China is a complicated case because when I first wrote that uh, chat, when I wrote the first version of that chapter long before it was a book, uh, my sources were uh, Western scholars who were basing their description of the legal system on the Chinese legal literature. After that, uh, after after Mao dies and China opens up, people get access to the records of low-level courts. And it turned out that what we what what we had thought was the legal system was really the elite view of what the legal system was supposed to be, but was not an entirely accurate description of how the legal system actually worked. So I discussed that in the chapter as well. So that was a case where this is a system that vanished more than a century ago. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you have ambiguity because not all of the source material was available until relatively recently. Uh, and it turned out that the sort of the elite 
the stuff they wrote about the legal system was pretty clearly not representing the legal system very accurately as it actually functioned. Is it um, probably that, that they were ignorant of it or that it was for propaganda no. purposes? Well, not exactly propaganda. It's a, look, think about our legal system. How many people who have not looked at it carefully believe that criminals actually get a jury trial? So it's like a, it's like a kind of very rough civics class version of our legal system compared to going like through and that. digging through all the case law. That is the actual fact of our legal system is something well over 90% of, of felons are convicted without a trial because they have plea bargains. That's not the sort of jet, the image we, you know, some people know that it's not, it's not exactly a secret, but if you think of sort of the standardized explanation of how our legal system works, it involves everybody having a right to a trial, and it implies that he will actually are only convicted after having a trial, and it isn't true. So I think that the Chinese are not the only people who have a sort of an idealized version of their system, which is is what the philosophers and the legal scholars scholars write about. But going back to the Indians, uh, one of the issues, the, the, the Plains Indians, uh, we I have access to secondary sources written by people who were talking with Indians who had been alive before they went on to reservation. So they they at least had some sources from the very end of the period they were looking at when these were essentially independent nations of, of their own. Uh, but then you have to look at the biases of the sources. And that for that, you have different, different sources and different things. That the, the clearest case is the Comanche, because you get a rather attractive picture of the Comanche by people who were interviewing them at the time when they were a sort of pitiable remnant of what had in fact been a ferocious and for a long time very successful society, which went around torturing people to death and and raping women and kidnapping kids. Uh, and more or less, I think they took, they slowed the expansion across Texas by something like 20 years. And they did that in spite of the fact that their opponents, Mexican and American, had much larger populations and better weapons. But they were very good at fighting. Uh, and that's interesting. But I think that that if you compare the... I had one of my sources was from somebody who was captured by the Comanche, I think, in the 19th century, uh, was a essentially a slave of theirs for a fair while, eventually succeeded in killing his owner and escaping. And he then describes the whole thing. And that's not very much like the picture that the legal scholars who were interviewing Comanches in the 1930s probably uh, were, were presenting. And he might uh, have the opposite bias if he was interested. Well, I in... don't think so. He, he surely had some biases. He wanted to make a good story of it. But I think I, I think it's pretty clear that 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 his basic that the basic factual uh, account of the fact that they did torture ca captives to death for the fun of it, more or less. Uh, is real and anyway but 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 that but that's i mean it's, it's a general problem in scholarship of any sort how you try to tease out your best guess of the truth from the sources, mm -hmm. and, the sources and none of those none of the plains indians that you go over none of them had written records or writing about their legal system right it's all oral records and interviews no, it's all oral that is they've, they've got oral traditions which tell you something about it uh and in the case of the the cheyenne uh, who are in, they're, they're very interesting because they have a sort of a proto-government part of the year that the tribe gathers together in the summer and disperses through the winter for, 
practical purposes because in the summer they they have sources of food that can feed a whole bunch of people at once. And in that case, one of the sources was a man who became friends with a bunch of the Cheyenne probably before they all went onto reservation, remained friends with them for a long time thereafter, clearly had a very positive picture of it. And so he was giving a sort of a, a firsthand insider picture as opposed to the more secondary sources who were you know relying on this interview with this Cheyenne and so forth. So that was that was 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 interesting. And Which legal systems did you not include but that you would have liked to? Well I mean I guess the obvious one would be Roman law. And I've got a chapter on Roman law in somebody else's book, but that's it's a very big subject in which there's an enormous amount of scholarship. I don't really read Latin. I took Latin in high school, but I can't actually read it. Uh, and I think that's what the problem in general is that in a sense, I couldn't really do what I was trying to do because being thoroughly competent in one legal system is, if not quite a life job, it's more than a six month job, shall we say. And I tried to con control for that as best I could by writing a draft of a chapter then finding somebody who was actually an expert, getting him to look at the draft and tell me I had wrong. And the 18th century English was probably the best one because I, in fact, got in touch with a scholar in Canada who was probably the world's leading expert on the subject. He's no longer alive, but he was a nice fellow. And he was willing to tell me, you know, what I had right or wrong. That was in the, in the case of the uh, Somali uh, I located the relevant scholar who was a retired London School of Economics uh, anthropologist who had been studying the Somali since the 1950s or so. Uh, when I was looking for literature on the Somali, I think the first two books I found were him and the third book was a fest trip in his honor by other people. Uh, and so I asked him some questions and instead of answering the questions, he said, the answer to your questions is, is in such and such one of my books. <laughs> and so I was able to find online that book. And sure enough, it told me the things I wanted to, I wanted to know. Uh, for Jewish law, I discussed it. I think, I can't remember if I got any real scholars. I certainly had a, at least one Orthodox friend who, who I got to comment on it. But I think I, I think I did a little better than that. This, all of this is long enough ago, so I'm not sure I remember all of the details. But that was what I was at least trying to do where I could. The Icelandic, I think I ended up getting... Uh, somebody I, who had been a colleague of mine at UCLA when I was originally doing my Icelandic work uh, and who's one of the leading scholars to look at it. But that, at least the theory, which I did to some extent, was that I used the secondary literature to get the best picture I could manage of this system. And I then, having written a draft, find somebody who actually is competent to write the chapter and have him tell me what I have wrong. It just occurred to me that it, it's such a fun book, it could easily be expanded to, a, to an encyclopedia just to have one interesting and engaging essay about the legal system of, you know, and, and obviously you have two other authors in this book, a project that big would have to involve more people, but. Alternatively, if they solve the aging problem. I'm crossing my fingers as well. So this book, there's a, obviously this book is a lot more uh, descriptive. Your most famous book, Machinery of Freedom, is a little more prescriptive, a lot more prescriptive. Um, how do you think these two books relate to each other? And did writing this book or the scholarship in this book change or strengthen any of your views uh, in machinery? Well, I concluded that when I wrote my first book, I was reinventing the wheel. <laughs> that is to say, 
the most original part of Machinery of Freedom, the original first edition of it, was my sketch of what a stateless society with private property and trade might look like. That was the description of how a hypothetical anarcho-capitalist system would work. My inspiration for that was a science fiction novel, which was set in a very different environment and which didn't really tell me how to do it, but it persuaded me that it wasn't logically impossible to have a society where the legal structure itself was endogenous, was not being produced from the outside. And that became a project to figure out what that would be like. And after doing this work, I concluded that what I was doing was reinventing in a modern form a feud system, a feud law. And some of the features that I had are actually not all that different from some of the features of traditional Somali system, for example. Uh, not identical, and everything is different in different ways. So that would be probably the closest, the closest link, uh, really, to to my work. And that didn't really change my my views. In fact, I I'd have to think about it. Certainly, what is what has been true over time is that I have less and less thought that one has tidy, clean answers to questions that you know with certainty. After all, the Icelandic system broke down eventually. It took a long time, but it did. And so that raises the interesting question of, with my system, what are the potential areas of weakness? And I discussed that a bit in the first edition of Machinery. I discussed it at greater length in the third edition of Machinery, which is the current one. Uh, and that was probably affected a little bit by looking at, at real systems that were somewhat like that in a, in a more primitive way. I don't think so. I mean, I think it it fits together in that I was creating a a legal, a legal system unlike ours, uh, and these were a bunch of others. But it occurs not, to me not, when you're not, when you're thinking in the abstract about alternative, radically alternative legal arrangements, one thing to do is to and and a productive thing to do is to sit down and try to reason through what a reasonable solution would be. But another way to start is to scour the ends of the earth for if someone has already solved this problem and you know you draw you draw on medieval iceland and machinery something about the somali system jumped out that felt you know even though it's a i don't know how ancient but it's it's a traditional customary law system but the the idea of the dia paying group felt almost like you know a primitive insurance company or something like that what is that the dia paying group is a, is a primitive version of my rights enforcement agencies yeah because they share the obligation to enforce the claims of their members uh, who, who have been wronged. Uh, but they also share, to some extent, the obligation to pay the damage payment if one of their members has done something that wrong. That was the insurance part that occurred to me. It's yes. got elements of both. And and that's, but, but, but notice that the DIA paying group is that group I was mentioning that the Saudis told me about. All right. The Saudi what I'm calling tribes, so there's a different term for them, is very much like the DIA paying group in the sense that they share the cost, not all of it, but some of it, if one of them has uh, owes damages for something, owes DIA, which is, DIA is actually the Arabic term for it. I call it that because the English scholars who studied Somali, Somali used that term because they probably studied Arabic stuff first. And therefore, we're familiar with DIA, which is still a term. The DIA for in Saudi Arabia at the moment, if you run somebody down with your car, I think uh, the DIA payment is something a little over $100,000. So, is that a, a unit of money? A DIA, is that it, a unit it, of it, money? It's originally defined in camels. Okay. But it, it got converted 
to an equivalent in, I think, either gold or silver. And at some point, they converted it to an equivalent in, in, in whatever their money is. No, I would say probably it was more relevant not to that book, but to my work in economic analysis of law, because uh, one of the issues that I've discussed uh, in some detail, in part in a chapter in my book, Law's Order, is the trade-off between civil and between basically tort law and criminal law. That that if you think about it, modern legal systems are redundant because they have two different legal mechanisms for doing essentially the same work. You do something that you shouldn't do. The legal system intervenes. Something bad happens to you. Therefore, you won't do things you shouldn't do. And that could be either criminal law, where what happens is that the cops arrest you and you put you in jail, or it could be uh, tort law, where what happens is that somebody sues you and you end up paying damages. And the fact that the division between those is not always the same in the Icelandic, you really don't have it. It's quite criminal law, although the fact that you can end up being out, outlawed and executed makes it not quite the same as tort law either, was very interesting. And I have a discussion, I think the final chapter of the book, of lessons that we could learn, ideas in past systems that you might want to imitate. So one of my standard examples that I've used for a long time is the fact that in Icelandic law, tort claims were marketable. So if I don't have enough friends and relatives to have a reasonable chance of going to court and getting you convicted without getting beaten up on the way to court, I can transfer my claim to some neighbor who's got, you know, adult sons who went biking in their youth and relatives and allies and so forth. He can collect the money and maybe he gives me some of it, maybe he doesn't, depending on the terms we agreed to. And I suggested that it would make a good deal of sense in our system to make uh, claims marketable so that in, in right now, suppose somebody damages your car on the highway and you think you, you should be able to sue them for $500. You probably don't know how to get a good lawyer. You don't know whether the lawyer who's working for you is, is doing a good job. Well, if, 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 if claims were marketable, you just auction it off to the highest bidder. And the law firm that thinks it can get the most money for it at the lowest cost buys it. You're now just a witness and it collects. As far uh, as you know, is, have there been any somewhat modern legal systems that have had uh, marketable tort claims? I suspect, though I'm not sure, that there are, there are at least some, in, some, some cases where you could do it in our system. There's a, I'm trying to remember there's a term having to do with insurance claims where I think, I think it's something like the insurance company pays you and you transfer the claim to the subrogation, I think is the term, but it's, it's not my field, uh, and you transfer the claim to the insurance company. But you can't do it in general, uh, whereas as far as I can tell, they could. I'm trying to remember because I have some other examples, but that was that was sort of my favorite. I like to say that this is evidence that the American legal system is a mere thousand years behind the cutting edge of legal technology. So, you th would that be your pick if you were if you were picking and choosing from interesting legal features of things you've re read about as an interesting or potentially beneficial? No, I, think, I think I think the most interesting one is, is is private enforcement of criminal law. The most interesting one is the is the feud system. Uh, as something that really existed. And that's interesting product because I invented it. I just invented it a <laughs> few thousand years after somebody else did. 
I often find myself doing that. I discovered at one point that one of my published articles had actually been stolen by Ronald Coase about 20 years before I wrote it. Uh, that is not the whole article. The core idea of the article had been. I don't know if I ever told him that. I might have. Uh, <laughs> I more meant in terms of what would be uh, a beneficial and the somewhat practical reform in a modern legal system. What do you, what do you think would have the best, uh, yes. would be the best recommendation of the different features of legal systems you studied? But I think probably shifting more things away from criminal law to something like tort law. But I have a long discussion in my book, Law's Order, of the modifications you would want to make in tort law in order to make it more, more workable. You know, I've got lots of discussion in Law's Order, but that's not mainly motivated by this stuff, although a little bit of it is. You talk in Law's Order about, well, and you mentioned it in this book, too, that one possible reason for the distinction between criminal and tort law, where criminal law has a very high standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and tort law's preponderance of the evidence is that, you know, the the payment of damages, even if it's wrong, is not a net loss to society. My loss is your gain if I'm paying you damages, but if I'm paying with my life or in time served in jail, that's just a net loss if it's wrong. Is there any evidence that that rationale played a role in that distinction? Or is that just a happy coincidence? I certainly don't have evidence of how I did it. Somebody might. Uh, but yeah, no, that's that's near the beginning of the book when I'm trying to explain why economics is relevant to law. But I actually have a long series uh, in the chapter on basically on, on criminal versus tort, where I'm really asking the question, could you entirely replace criminal law with tort law? And part of the fun of that discussion is that I'm not only trying to look at that question, I'm trying to demonstrate the fact that these issues are complicated enough so that the fact you've heard a good argument for something is not an adequate reason to believe it. So I run through maybe four, four rounds or five rounds of here is how you do it. Here is why that wouldn't work. Here is how you modify it so that it would work. Here is why that wouldn't work and so forth. And and it's fun. Uh, and I think I end up with the conclusion that there is at most a fairly small subset of cases for which it wouldn't be practical to do it that way if you modified it accordingly. But as I say, part of the reason for that is because people are too too willing to say, well, look, I've seen a good argument for such and such. It must be true. And here I've got good arguments for both sides going back and forth. That's definitely a humbling so, experience. If you if you read enough, you can all, or talk to enough people, you can always find very compelling arguments. Do you have any inside knowledge about um, your son, Patry? I know is involved in the Prospera, uh, Z-E-D-E. I don't know if it's pronounced Z-E-D or Zeta uh, in Hon- yes. Honduras. Not not really. That is, I know he's been, this has been a project he's been involved in for a long time. And he, I don't know how long ago it was, but five or six years ago that he started his investment fund. And, and I gather it's doing all right, but uh, you know, I see him. He's only about half an hour from here. Uh, and I have grandchildren who I like to see. Uh, not so much during COVID, but hopefully that's getting over at this point, looks like. Crossing uh, my fingers. Well, I'm I'm supposed to be giving a talk in Prague in April. And when the pandemic started, I was on a speaking trip in Europe. And my younger son, Patry's half-brother, persuaded me by email that this this one was serious. And so I canceled the last two talks and flew home. And in fact, at least one of them, I wouldn't have been able to make ex post. It was a 
talk in Prague. And I think they closed the border like a day before I was supposed to arrive, by which time I was already back home. Oh, wow. Uh, and at this point, uh, I've agreed to give a talk in Prague for European Students for Liberty uh, sometime in April. I assume that if there's another wave before that, I will tell them, well, I can do it online, but I can't do it in real space. But my guess is there won't be. And I think it's pretty clear that Omicron is going to be effectively over in a month. At least I've, I've been monitoring it fairly carefully. Uh, the peak, the, 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 the current figure is about a factor of 10 down from its peak for the infection rate. Uh, and that's over a little over a month. Another factor of 10 and it's, it's basically gone as, as it's back down to sort of base level. Uh, so I figure that by sometime in March, if there's nothing, if, if nothing changes, it will be safe to travel to Europe and give talks and run around. So I haven't, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm planning to put up a blog post and maybe a Facebook post asking whether people want me to give talks. Uh, and I haven't done that yet, but I've been watching and I will probably do it pretty soon. And basically, my trips are normally two weeks. So I basically can say I'm going to be in Prague on the following day. I'm interested in possible invitations either within two weeks before or after, and then we'll figure out how I put them together into a, into a series of talks. Well, I hope you get to plug some in. Uh, are you working on anything? I know you're working on something with your uh, putting together old blog posts. Uh, do you want to say yes. something about your current but, projects? Yeah, sure. Uh, a few years ago, I decided after I'd written the legal systems book, I concluded that I didn't really have an idea, a, a set of new ideas that were worth writing a book about. And I also, I, I did have sequels to two of my novels that I had some ideas for, but they haven't really caught fire. So they may or may not ever get written. Uh, but it then occurred to me that I had 14 years of old ideas on my blog. So I went through, I think the total number of posts was well over a thousand, as I remember. I, I looked at it at some point. So I went through all, the, all of my old posts, sorted them by topic, uh, first broadly and then more finely. So one topic is economics, one topic is climate, one topic is pocket, one topic is libertarianism, one is education, one is religion. I don't remember all of them, but those are more or less the major ones. And then what I'm doing for each one is I try to, I'm, I'm not just making it out of the blog posts, but I'm making it out mostly out of the ideas in the blog posts. So I find a group of posts that were really on the same subject and try to take the ideas from those and rewrite them into a into a chapter on that something subject. into so that they fit together more coherently as a book. I also do additional work. I've, for example, the sixth uh, IPCC report didn't exist when I finished the pretty much finished the blog in question. I mean, I still post a little bit, but not very much. So I, one of the things I've done is to go over that and to see what that does or doesn't tell us about climate issues. And similarly, I got into a debate with uh, a Austrian libertarian economist, Austrian in the academic sense, not the national sense. Yes. Walter Block is a nice fellow. Uh, and we had a online debate on Austrian versus Chicago School Economics. Yeah, and I just watched that. Trying, in, in the course of preparing that, I got interested in trying to actually understand what Austrian economics was. And 
I concluded that the particular version that Walter was defending, I had asked him what version of, of, of Austrian economics he was defending, and he pointed me at a treatise by Murray Rothbard. And I concluded that that version was terrible, uh, that it was internally inconsistent. They did that the things he thought he had proved, he hadn't proved, and so forth. Uh, but then that got, but, but it's clear that not all Austrians agreed with Rothbard. And I'm still not satisfied that I really have a clear idea of whether there are fundamental differences between, I really think of it not as Chicago, but as Marshallian economics, which is of which Chicago is a subset. But you really do have, as it were, two intellectual traditions, one of them starting with Jevons through Marshall, and one of them with uh, Menger uh, and people along those lines, ending up with Mises, basically. And Ludwig von Mises, who was Rothbard's teacher, and who was, I think, the closest thing to a sort of uh, authority figure, as it were, for modern Austrians. Back in the 1930s, he wrote that he wrote that he didn't think there were fundamental differences. He he was putting it in terms of three different schools. The third one being Valra, who was doing French sort of general equilibrium theory, a highly mathematical nature. And at that point, Mises thought that basically, you know, we're we're doing our stuff in slightly different ways. We're putting it in different words, but basically, it's all the same. And he might be right. Uh, but certainly most modern Austrians don't think so. And I am not sure what the right answer to that question is. But Have what you looked I've much doing, into the work of uh, Israel Kirzner? Not enough. That is, he's, he, he is, he's certainly one of the people who is not a Rothbardian, but I've, I, don't think, I don't think I've read anything specifically by him. I think I've read things about his views. But I should say that what I've been doing in, in writing this, I don't know if this is going to be one book or several books at this point, because it's a whole lot of material. So what I've been doing is uh, each time once I, I finish drafts for one section, I finish writing all the chapters on libertarianism I feel like, like, like writing, I then web it. And at this point, libertarianism is up, uh, economics is up, uh, education is up, religion is up. I'm currently working on climate, uh, and it'll probably be maybe a couple of months before I, I finish that because I've did a lot of posts on climate. It's an interesting and somewhat complicated issue. So it isn't just the blog posts that in each of these things, uh, I'm doing additional research and trying to understand things and so forth. But the the sort of the framework, it's starting out with the blog posts and then expanding from those where, I, where it seems worth doing. For example, I didn't have any blog posts at all on Austrian versus uh, Marshallian economics, but I'll have a chapter on that. I'm going to I'm going to uh, push you on something I've mentioned before. So I've I've uh, been to Slate Star Codex meetups at your house before, yes. Um, yes. and I I mentioned this in passing that uh, something I used to quite enjoy because I've followed your career for a long time or as long as a young man like myself can, and I used to really enjoy reading your old Usenet and um, various Google group debates yes. and. I, I think there's a not, lot of material there group. too. Use, use, Usenet, Usenet may have, may have turned into Google Groups. I think I that's think what it was. I, I was searching through there, but in particular, and he's famous now, so it might have some interest. You used to debate a lot with the founder of Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales. Um, yes, and they were great. Jimbo, they were Jimbo great. Wales. Jimbo, Jimbo Wales back Lewis then was what he was called. I then. remember when it occurred to me that they might be the same person, and I was yeah. Very pleasantly surprised. That was that was on humanity's philosophy objectivism. I recall, which was an interesting place to argue with people. I am not an objectivist, 
I am an admirer of Ayn Rand. I think she was a brilliant, courageous, original woman. I also think she was wrong about some very important things. Uh, and uh, so I had a lot of fun arguing with, with her more. There was a range of people there, but most of them were at least objectivists, more or less orthodox. And I think that Wales was probably the best of them, that he was almost the only one who, as far as I can tell, actually tried to understand my version of anarchy and tried to rebut it. And he came up with a criticism which was not quite right, but was related to one of the real problems that I think existed in the system. So, so in that sense, uh, I, I credit him with him with being, but there were some other people. Uh, there was at least one person, I don't even remember his name, but who what I liked about it was that he was willing to reject the orthodox position uh, when he didn't think it was right. Uh, and to take a pretty heterodox view of, well, I don't remember what the issues were, but some of the fairly fundamental issues. But no, I mean, there were basically, there were a few arguments that got in there. Some of that stuff ended up in the third edition of Machinery. Uh, I've got a chapter on, on Ayn Rand on why I think she was wrong about important philosophical issues. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, not all of my arguing was in, was in, in HPO. That was certainly a large part of it. But I remember I argued with David Graeber, who became fairly well known later in different contexts. Well, there was a lot of great material there. And some of that could provide fodder for for this project as well. Obviously, that's another chunk of work. It could. And if I actually finish this project, (laughs) it would be worth at least thinking about, uh, especially if I finish it and decide that two thirds of it will make a book. It might be fun to go back to the USENET, assuming I can find the stuff. And I don't know how how accessible nowadays it is. I think it's less accessible than it was then, since Google is theoretically in charge of it. I don't think they've done as good a job of making it findable as the earlier interface did. Yeah, and then I've also thought about experiments, about arguments on Slate Star Codex, to what extent, because I've done a lot of writing there, too. Yeah. Uh, I was... I feel like that's replaced a lot of your blogging. Yeah, no, it did. It, it quite literally did because uh, it was a place where there were more interesting people who would be talking with me. And that all of that is the neat thing about Slate Star Codex, as I've said many times, is that you had a body of people who ranged politically from communist to anarcho-capitalist, religiously from believing Catholic to atheist, and professionally from a literal rocket scientist to a literal plumber. And they were talking with each other and it was almost all civil conversation. And that's the only place I think I've encountered online where that was true. To some extent it's true of the successor of the two successor online things to Slate Star Codex, but less so. And that was a lot of fun. And so you could have interesting arguments with interesting people. Uh, And so I blogged a lot less after I discovered SSC, that's certainly true still blocked a little but not as not as much so no i could imagine if i really decided that i had to write more stuff after i finished this enormous project it's going to be several more years i think uh that i could imagine going to either my usenet files or my slate star codex uh comments which are available uh probably even findable uh and seeing whether i could get out of them some interesting interesting bits it occurred it first occurred to me when i read Benjamin Tucker's instead of a book, which a lot of it takes the form of reprinting old debates in the journal yes. Liberty. And it's it's really fun and 
you know, fast paced. It's it's an action packed experience to read smart people going back and forth at each other. And obviously yep. not all the debates end up looking like that because not everyone online is reasonable, but some of them yep. were really enriching and, and exciting yep. at the same time. Um, you know, I can, find that arguments are a good mechanism for making me learn things and think about things. So that, for example, the latest, the latest bit of my interaction with the Austrians is that one of the issues that came up in some, basically after I had the debate with Walter, I arranged with him and a few other Austrians to sort of continue it by email. And that faded after a while, but I think we made some progress. But one of the issues that arose was the question of whether you should think of utility as ordinal or cardinal. Is utility only an ordering? Is all you can see, I prefer A to B to C. Or does it make sense to say, I prefer A to B by a lot and B to C by a little statements of that sort? Do you want to think of utility as only an, an, an ordering of, of, of things or is the sort of thing you could imagine the utility of this is, is 17 and the utility of that is 23? And so Robert Murphy, who's, I think, very again, a nice guy, probably one of the better the people I was arguing with, uh, put up a piece on on a Mises, publica- Mises Institute publication arguing for ordinal utility. And I thought there were a bunch of things wrong with it. And so I uh, wrote up uh, my term of the sequence. He was responding to arguments that I had made in the email conversation. I think I argued with a bit, and then I asked him uh, if, if I put up a rebuttal and uh, he thought that in fact I'd shown that his arguments were wrong, whether he would be willing to say so in public and whether the Mises Institute would publish it. And what he proposed doing and what we're now doing is that I wrote my rebuttal, I put it up on my blog, and he is going to write a response to it with a link to my blog post. Perfectly respectable way of doing this. Anybody who wants can see my arguments as well as his arguments. And at this point, I've put up my piece on the blog uh, a day or two ago. I actually added it to Facebook and got a bunch more response from that. Uh, and yesterday, we'll see what happens. But the interesting bit is that my view has changed. That I would have said before that both the cardinal and the ordinal view of utility work. And the only real argument for cardinal utility is von Neumann's argument that cardinal utility makes a rather neat way of modeling choices under uncertainty. This is a von Neumann Morgenstern, really von Neumann utility. Uh, in which the way you imagine people making decisions are under uncertainty is that they look at the expected value of utility for a gamble and then choose the gamble with the highest expected value. And that's turned out to be a very clever and interesting idea. Uh, but I concluded in the course of writing the, of, of, of rebutting Robert, that actually I thought I preferred uh, cardinal utility in general, that I thought there were two different reasons one of which ought to appeal to the Austrians, why cardinal utility was better. And the first reason was that it better fits our direct experience of the inside of our own heads, that we don't in fact observe that all I can say about my preferences is I like chocolate ice cream better than ice cream, better than than vanilla ice cream, and I like not having my house burned down better than having my house burned down. That would, saying that's all I can say is obvious nonsense because I want my house not to burn down a whole lot more than I want to have uh, my preferred flavor of ice cream. So that that means that just saying utility is ordinal is dumping a bunch of information we have by introspection. Second and related reason is that if you think about it, 
the cardinal way, cardinal utility way of doing economics is a good deal easier to intuit and understand than the ordinal way. I should say this predates the Austrian issue. An economist called Hicks in the 1930s wrote a, a, a I think first papers, but eventually a book in which what he demonstrated was that everything that was being done at the time using cardinal utility could be done using ordinal utility. And that's where things like indifference curves, if you've taken an econ course, come out of. And it's true. It wasn't true 10 years later because once von Neumann published, there was then something that cardinal utility could do that ordinal utility couldn't, <laughs> namely. Uh, but, but that wasn't true when Hicks wrote. But I concluded that, in fact, it was a step backwards. He, he mostly persuaded people. That is, at this point, I think probably most Marshallian economists, as well as the Austrians, would say that utility is really ordinal, unless they're actually talking about the von Neumann case of decisions under uncertainty. And we just use cardinal things as a simple way of representing it, but that doesn't really matter. But I think they're wrong. And I think that in particular, in if you think about the concept of declining marginal utility, it is very clear what that means conceptually. If you were saying, yes, uh, I value the second gallon of water less than the first, the third less than the second, and so forth. Uh, and if you go a little further, you say, furthermore, if I get additional money, uh, I will spend my first $10,000 on the most important things, then the next thousand on slightly less important. So that's a nice, plausible argument. And it's a whole lot easier to intuit that in terms of the utility per unit, the marginal utility is going down uh, as, the, as the quantity, whether it's all goods for money or individual goods goes up. It turns out it's not rigorously true. There are cases where marginal utility rises. My standard example is the fourth wheel for your car, fourth tire for your car is worth more than the third to you. Yeah. Uh, but it's usually true and it makes sense. But if you turn that into ordinal, it turns out, at least in the Marshallian version, by the time you've made it ordinal, it's a statement about the shape of indifference curves. And it's something which is much harder to intuitively understand, even though it says the same thing. One of the things that both I and Austrians, I think, agree on is that modern economics is too mathematical, that people make too much use of math instead of trying to actually understand the economics of things. Well, one of the reasons, I think, is that when you shift from doing things in a way that people can intuit pretty easily to doing things in a more or less equivalent way that they can't, they end up using the math as a, as, as a crutch instead of seeing the logic and the pattern in their heads. So that's my second reason for thinking that cardinal utility is actually a better way of doing economics than ordinary. Is the, is the Austrian claim that that utility is not cardinal, just that it's metaphysically impossible to measure the cardinality or that it actually isn't? No, the, the claim is that it is not. Robert's claim is that it doesn't mean anything to say that my preference for ice cream A over ice cream B is greater than my preference for ice cream B over ice cream C. I'm it's trying to understand how it could even it. be ordinal. Like, what is it? Can can you think of an example of an analogy of something else a little bit more concrete that is clearly ordinal but not cardinal in a way that seems counterintuitive like that? Yeah. Because you're right. Intuitively, it feels it feels so wrong to say that you couldn't say that anything more than I want my house to burn down yeah. less. Well, if you if you look on my blog, you will find my essay, and I have a link there to Robert's essay, 
So you can see what he said and you can see my response. And if you wait another week or two, I don't know how long it'll take, he will presumably put up his rebuttal. And of course, what he ought to be saying is, sorry, I was wrong, but I don't <laughs> expect him to say that, that you very rarely convince people that fast. And my real objective from the standpoint of the person I'm arguing with is not to have him say I was wrong now, but to give him the ideas such that a year from now, he will say I was wrong, or maybe we'll say, oh, no, I never really believed that at all. And uh, one of my father's lines that I, I like is that the purpose of an argument is not to convince your opponent. It's to give him the ideas that he might later convince himself. That's very wise. So the and I, I'm going to say one more thing about uh, utility before I before I let you go, because I'm, I'm pushing you for time here. The mm-hmm. fact of utility being ordinal rather than cardinal, that's what gives Austrians the claim that it does that interpersonal comparisons of utility no, are meaningless. That's what Robert claims, but he's wrong. Because I'm not saying it's true, but is that their logic that because it's ordinal, you can't do that interpersonal was one comparisons? Of the thing, one of the things he said was that. But I don't think it's true in the following sense. First, the, the, the Austrians believe that preference is only revealed by choice. And if preference is only revealed by choice, then with either cardinal or ordinal utility, you don't have preferences. You don't have an ordering for multiple people, right? There is no chooser no in the society. Yeah. From that standpoint, you, they could believe in cardinal utility and still say that it's that it's it's not interpersonally comparable. Cardinal utility, after all, von Neumann utility uh, is only defined up to basically uh, <coughs> positive linear transformations. That if you change, if you add, turn all utilities into twice the previous number, they describe exactly the same behavior. If you turn all of them into twice the previous number plus ten, they describe the behavior. But you can't make change, make transformations other than that kind of transformation. So it doesn't require the claim that it's interpersonally comparable. Furthermore, if you don't have the requirement of, of, of revealed preference, if you just say, can you have interpersonally comparable ordinal utility? Sure, you could have an ordinal ranking, which was a ranking over everybody, right? The ordinary, my ordinal ranking says I prefer A to B. Well, somebody who believes in social welfare or something could say, all right, I got an ordinal ranking too. And uh you're getting that is preferred to my getting this. So it's not really, I don't, I don't think it's really an ordinal versus cardinal issue at all, which is uh, a separate, separate point. But anyway, I don't, I, I don't think I understand fundamental Austrian. I think, I think I understand Rothbard well enough to say that some of the arguments he was making were nonsense, but I don't think I understand the nature of Austrian economics well enough. I mean, I can say at least one argument that Mises made was obviously wrong, but everybody makes mistakes. And, He's not here, so I can't present it to him and see if he got a rebuttal. Uh, and I do. I should say my I've got the one of the things in my economics uh, section, which is webbed, is my draft of uh, a rebuttal to basically mostly it's a rebuttal to Rothbard, and then at the end some attempt to make sense of, of Austrian economics more generally. Before we go, can you tell people how they can find you if they want to see what you're sure. up to? Uh, my webpage is daviddfriedman.com. It has links to most of my published articles, full text of some, but not all of my books. It also has a link to my blog, which I still post stuff on, although not as much as I once did, uh, which is called Ideas, because the basic function of the blog is for me to be able to write out whatever I happen to feel like writing about. 
which I enjoyed. Uh, physically, I'm in San Jose, California. Uh, you were mentioning the meetups. Basically, Slate Star Codex was a blog that I spent a lot of time on. Very interesting. Unfortunately, it vanished, although it's got some somewhat inferior replacements at this point. Uh, and it had enough people interested so that people in various parts of the world occasionally have meetups where readers of the blog get together with each other. And before COVID, I was hosting a meetup at my house in the South Bay about every two months, I think. I, once COVID is over, I intend to go back to that. So if you're in the Bay Area, keep an eye out and you will see somewhere or hear that I'm doing it again. I'll probably put it up on my blog, maybe on my blog, maybe on my webpage. You can come over. And I certainly will. Yeah, I, I'm pretty close maybe. to you. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It was fun. Bye-bye. That was David Friedman, and the book is Legal Systems Very Different from Ours. I strongly recommend it. It's a book with very high returns in terms of the depth and breadth of knowledge you'll gain from reading it, so please check it out. You can find links to that book, as well as to many other things discussed in the interview in the show notes section. If you're enjoying the show, please hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and please, please rate and review. It really helps to get the word out and to promote the show. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.